Earlier this year, John Gilley stepped into the CEO seat at Kentec, fulfilling a lifelong ambition. I'm Joe Hedigan, head of Kentec's marketing and communications function, and someone who John describes as keeping him honest. John is a self-professed change merchant. I would say he's a visionary thinker, but even his own mother has, on more than one occasion, described him as touched. In this conversation, he talks me through some of the evolutionary changes he's pushed through so far in his tenure with Kentec. Hear his thoughts on what future organisations will look like and what advice he would give to the next generation of people coming into the industry. This is Spark Generation. Hi, John. Welcome to Spark Generation. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me on, Joe. Um, to start off with, I wondered if you could tell everyone a little bit about yourself and the people that you share your life with. Right, so um, I am Irish. I am 48, turning 49 soon. I am married to Russia for... I think 17 years. I have um, three kids. Freya is 15, Fionn is 13, and Sholin is nine. And we live in Abu Dhabi. We've been here for the last uh, 13 years. So you said that you were from Ireland, which we can tell by your accent. Whereabouts did you go to school? What was life like growing up? Yeah, so I'm from Ireland, but more importantly, I'm from Cork. I went to school in um, Colossumur in Cove and then studied uh, for a couple of years mechanical engineering in Cork CIT and then moved over to London to finish out a degree in mechanical engineering um, specialised in automatic control uh, from Middlesex University and graduated in 1994. Um, And from the early years of your life, who do you think the people are that inspired you and influenced you the most? Um... I guess my father was a big inspiration for me. Uh, he had a great work ethic, very logical man, maybe somewhat quiet. Um, my mom, on the other hand, was far more bubbly and social or sociable. Um, I think, you know, from early work experience, uh, I worked. my dad worked in Irish Steel. He was a manager in Irish Steel, and I uh, spent my summers working in the drawing office there. Uh, one of the head draftsmen at the time drafting was on actual with, with pencils and paper, uh, but computer-aided design was coming in at the time. And uh, this guy, Huey Drake, was adamant that Irish Steel trots swapped over to computer-aided design. So it was the first time I, I really embraced that because I'm a change merchant. I love change. I don't get change fatigue. I like to, to talk about change as change energy. You know, And even, even in my first job uh, after graduating, or my second job after graduating was with Kent's at the time. And um, we were working in the north of Saudi Arabia. Uh, the construction manager was a guy called Tony McCarthy. And at the time, I was in the planning department. We were doing everything on Microsoft DOS uh, program. And the planning was done on a program called Open Plan 2000. And I managed to get a bootleg copy of Primavera and installed that on a PC that I had and did all of the commissioning schedules on, on Primavera and 
Tony was a an older construction manager and he embraced that change. He really inspired me how he just absolutely lapped it up and changed everything over to what I had designed for him, you know. So you're talking a lot there about um, kind of technological innovation, how you've always kind of embraced that. But in the early years when you first kind of went into employment, what did kind of the culture of businesses and practices look like back then? Yeah, my, my, I mean, my first my first job was with Kent in Clonmel, and it was in a, a large design office. I was actually working in a department that was headed up by Mark Barry. He gave me uh, he gave me my first job out of college. Um, it was very hierarchical, um, but I suppose design offices can can be like that. And then when we moved out to um, Saudi Arabia on a on a project, you know, a project manager really was was and I suppose to somewhat uh, to this day continues to be almost godlike on a on a project, you know. It was very rule driven. You had to be at your desk by a certain period a certain time in the morning and you had a certain amount of work to get through and I suppose you were reprimanded if you couldn't, you know. Um but nevertheless, um the crack was still good. Um camaraderie was fantastic amongst uh, people on projects, especially when you're living so far away from home, you know. Yeah. I think um, we're talking about that kind of evolution in the way that businesses operate and how they have operated over the years. Um, you know, from even my early years of employment, I remember it all kind of being very kind of hierarchical and command and control. And I mean, when I first joined um, Kentech, which was about 10 years ago now, it was a very kind of... Um, friendly vibe it always had this kind of family feel to the business but there was still a very clear hierarchy and I remember being pulled by John Kent into the management meetings the quarterly management meetings where all the regional heads used to come to the Dubai office and it was just an awful place to be it felt really kind of combative and stuff like that so the, the business the Kentech that I joined 10 years ago is very different in the way that the culture is and the way that it's run to the business that we are today. And I remember there being quite a significant shift in around, say, 2013. Can you remember that period and, and why it was that we made that shift? Yeah, so I suppose, I, I, I mean... Like quarterly, quarterly management meetings can be combative if, uh, if results are not going your way. Mm. You know, you know meetings are, are, are really pleasant when everything is going in the right direction and a nice steady progress up the curve of growth and profitability. Um, but around that time, we had had bad results. And I think it was about 2013, 2014, that you know we were looking at the reason why we were, in certain cases, losing money. Um, and the early view there was that it was largely due to productivity. Because at, at that time, you must remember that the vast majority of our work was construction hookup projects, really large mega projects full of risk, um, difficult terms and conditions. So it was all about productivity. And when I analyzed the numbers back then as CEO, I was saying that, you know, that everything seemed big. We were winning work and we were executing work. We just weren't being productive enough to make enough money to cover off our overhead and end up making profit. Um, so the, the early view was, was that we would focus on training um, of our frontline supervision, that we would actually look at 
the likes of foremen and supervisors and people who are in leadership roles on the projects and that we'd really focus in on those people and invest money and time in training them and bringing those uh, men and women up the curve so that we could increase productivity across everything, you know, and it went for everything, you know, materials, delivery, quality and uh, supervision. But to be fair at the time, John Kavanagh, you know, John Kavanagh and I worked together um, over the last 20 years and, 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 and known of him uh, even longer when he was in Kent and I was in Kent. And we were looking at it and John always kind of pulled me back and said that it, this is really a, a more endemic um, problem across the business. It would be a narrow, too narrow of us to just focus on the frontline supervision because it's across the entire company. And we were talking about, at that time, we started talking about engagement. Uh, we talked about the difference between management and leadership, that people don't want to be managed, they want to be led, you know? So it's, it's gone away from what we were talking about that we both experienced in our early careers that really people don't want to be managed any longer. They want to have a voice and they want to, they want to follow leaders or inspirational leaders. So we came up with um, a whole host of, you know, almost initiatives um, like, you know, a virtual learning academy, like training for frontline supervisions, supervisors and so on and so forth, like a proper performance appraisal system, um, like talking about, you know, d different ways of communicating in order to inspire the types of results and get people to follow you. And then as it all, as we, as we got it all together, we had Mandy Kennedy, who, you know, um, and, a, and, a, and a whole host of other people. And we decided to brand it all under one, um, banner which was k2 so k2 for us is you know k for kentech and it's k to the power of two so it's kentech empowered k2 isn't the tallest mountain uh, mountain in the world but it is one of the most difficult to climb um you know so we, we that, that's that's what the the shift was within the culture of the company for me we all as you said we always had a friendly culture but it introduced um learning and engagements and, and accountability the likes that we hadn't seen really before I th and i think that's you know i think since then um you know kentech has come an awful long way um but i would put k2 even though it took us probably it probably took us four or five years longer to actually define what it was um, so that we could communicate it properly because it, you know for the first four or five years everybody was saying what is k2 anyway and it's something very difficult to touch it's just it's our way of doing things it's our culture if you like um but the strides that we've made with our culture and, and people sense that, you know, we've had people joining us now from uh, lots of different companies, you know, from old, older Kent's employees that are coming out of S&C and they're really pleased with what they find culturally uh, when they come into Kent Tech. And I think that's been the, the seismic shift in, in how we operate. And then also a key, you know, sitting at the heart of the whole K2 philosophy is all about kind of, innovation and forward thinking so you know our culture was always key to it and it's really helped to um, grow and enhance that culture but it's the innovation side of it that makes it really really special and really exciting and um, I remember that you know our charter was one of the first things that came out of the whole 2013 k2 shift yeah. um, how was the charter how did the charter come about how was it created yeah, so it was a really, it was one of the first deliverables that came out of uh, K2 and it didn't, we didn't set out to make a charter. I didn't even know what a charter was, to be honest. Um, we set out to come up with what was very common um, 
at the time, which was called a leadership charter. And even projects, you know, large, you know, mega projects that large blue chip companies do, they come up with a leadership charter. So they, everybody, you get a, a group of people into the room. In our case, we got, I think it was about 12 or 14 people into a room, which included, you know, John Kavanagh and myself. It included project managers. It included construction managers. It included um, supervisors and a foreman. And we got everybody into the room and we all just sat about for a day and a half, really to figure out how we would, you know, what would we, what's the social contract that we would form between us that dictates how we're going to work together? Because it was one of the, it's one of the things from training or learning that I would have done previously, you know, where you have, where you have a certain amount of resources. So you have enough clever people in the room and you know what results you want. Then the middle R is, is uh, relationships. It's how you, you know, engage with one another. So this leadership charter was to define how, let's say, you and I, Joe, would work together. So that in, in the future, now that it was written down, it really would, it's, it's just a, a page um, separated into kind of six different sections of values, if you like, it replaced our values. So that in time, you know, if I'd, if I'd said something inappropriate to you or I'd pushed you in a certain way or you'd push me in a certain way, which would be more likely, then I could say, well, look, here's the charter that we all, we all agreed and we all decided that we were going to live to. So what, what you're doing is not um, living up to that charter, you know. So as we did that, we got that first page and then we, um, we went back and had a look at our mission and our vision statement and we just found that they look, you know, they were very BD orientated. They were very marketing type orientated words, very generic, didn't really, for me, didn't really aim for the heart. And we spent quite a few weeks then figuring out how we would change those, you know, so, and, and we actually got rid of the whole, all the terminology. So we got rid of the word mission and we replaced it with purpose. What's the purpose that we are, what, you know, what is our purpose? Um, you know, and our purpose talks and it's, you know, it's easy to say, well, we're here to make money. Um, and that's, that's where everybody, you know, when you, when you, when you don't open your mind and, and have a K2 reset to kind of think, what is it? Why, why are we here? And so really our purpose talks about that. We just want to be recognized. We want to be associated with the most ambitious projects in the world. You know, we're like-minded men and women and we want to be associated because that's what we, when, when I go home uh, to Ireland or when I go have a meal with friends here in Abu Dhabi, I like to talk about what we've built. You know, we did that. You know, we were involved in that project on the north, northern tip of Sakhalin. There's an island off the, in the North Pacific, off the east coast of Russia. And then we, on the vision, which is normally we will be this, on our vision, we changed it to ambition. So and our ambition was, uh, was the thing I'm most proud about in Kentech really is, is that our ambition is that all we're looking for is recognition by our employees and our stakeholders, our shareholders, as being an exceptional company to work for and with. So it, it kind of brings in the partners as well, you know, as our contracting partners or joint venture partners that we'll have as we grow, you know, because after that, if we, if we are recognized by all of those people, by if, if our employees recognize us as being exceptional to work for, if our clients, our shareholders and our partners, then the money will, the profit will, will follow, you know? And then on the, 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 the centerpiece was what we called the leadership charter. And we just threw out all of the old core values because they were just generic. You could, have, you could have taken them off anybody else's website and they were very similar to ours. And we stuck in our leadership charter. That's why we called it a PCA charter. So per, uh, purpose, um, culture is how we do things and 
ambition is what we what we strive for. Yeah. I feel like the culture element of it is, you know, we're talking about um, behaviours basically, aren't we? Kind of behaviours that we ex- expect of people. And you were you were talking there about how we treat each other and stuff like that. But I think that's the special thing about it is that I tend to find that um, it's just the way that the business is it's a family and when people come into it we just we kind of just know how to behave because we are like-minded men and women do you know what i mean we're all we're all working for the same purpose we're all kind of the same type of people you know that kind of thing even though we're from lots and lots of different countries with lots of different cultural backgrounds yeah all the same if you know what i mean we know how to treat each other and that's um sits at the heart of what it's all about yeah like-minded is a funny one we, we, we've had because um, we've had different coaches whom you've met you know david rook and um kylie and nell from shift to unlimited some some people get a bit hung up on the like-minded word um because you know the having not been um at the creation of it they think like-minded what we only employ a certain type of person but it's not about that in actual fact we're and the like-minded is that we're all we're all completely different, but we have something that unites us, and that we're um, adventurous. I think is a is a good word, you know. And I, the word I use, that the, the word I would have loved to put in there is touched. It's, a, it's, it's an expression that we that my mum would use. That if she was talking about some fella that she thought was um, very adventurous, she might call him slightly touched. You know, she called me touched several times. So. Um, yeah, no, that's it. I mean, we're a very kind of diverse bit diverse business diverse group of people if you know what I mean but we're all one collective working towards you know a common goal and I think that's what brings us together if you know what I mean so yeah just just, I don't know from from my experiences with other companies it just kind of feels sort of different um so that was kind of through that 2013 period but we were still had a couple of years of struggling financially and then um 2015 we had the uh, blue water energy investment yeah um and that kind of helped the business skyrocket yeah. to you know just a couple of years after that we then launched our engine for growth and there was a bit of a business restructure so can you talk us through that period as well yeah so engine engine for growth was we had a strategy we had a five-year plan strategy and i think were we not like a year and a half into it or something like that and um at the time, Sarah was on maternity. I was stepping in as CEO, and we worked a couple. A couple of things really led to us, uh, let's say, dusting off the strategy so early. One was um, we were so well positioned in Kuwait to pick up a huge amount of work. There was we had done fantastic work in Kuwait as it was. There was potentially two, if not three, huge mega. Um, unit rate contracts that we felt we were extremely well positioned for. They were into floor and different clients that we had fantastic relationships with. Um, so it was very much a regional strategy. We were there, clients were going to come and spend money, happy days. But for one reason or another, the clients changed their contracting strategy. You know, So I think on two of them, they went uh, multidiscipline. And we're not a, on the construction hookup side. We're not multidisciplinary contractor. So that ruled two of them out straight away. We managed to get onto the third one and have since kind of rolled over and done some of the work for the other, other contractors who have failed. But we were, you know, we were probably targeting 80 or $90 million of revenue from that, you know, and it was a real kick in the teeth 
that that that, that contracting strategy uh, from the client side changed, and it was so easy that it just turned our growth plans off. You know, so we you know we really sitting back at the time, we really had to re-examine are we on the right strategy? You know, the other one was that, you know, I suppose the great thing about K2 is that we looked at how we would all work together. And probably one of the, you know, the earlier part of K2 is that it made us very insular. It, it kept us focusing in on ourselves and how, how, how great we were and how well we were treating one another and treating our employees. But in the end of the day, we were maybe leaving our clients behind. And in the end of the day, the clients uh, are the ones with the, with the dollars, you know, so they were the main two drivers for re-examining the strategy. We call, I think at the time we called it the strategy dust off uh, and then we branded it as engine for growth. So engine for growth, you know, it really was, a, I suppose you could call it a reset moment, a, a K2 reset moment. So it's a case of, you know, sit back, throw it, you know, I know we're really focused on regions and that has served us well for so long, but um, let's, let's just think outside the box and let's, let's rip this up and let's have another go, you know? So engine for growth, put clients at the center of the strategy. It was a client centric strategy and we split the business. We completely reorganized, we rewired the business and how we deliver our three best in class services to our clients. So we formed the three service lines, which were at the time uh, construction hookup, TMM and STS. And we put in managing directors for each of those service lines. <clears throat> and then we offered those, you know, we offered those uh, services to our key clients. So we really focused in on who our key, key clients were. But the difference is, is that we would support them wherever they wanted to go on the globe. We'd no longer be rooted in a particular region. But we would be globally, operationally agile, um, and that we would technically differentiate ourselves. So those three managing directors would spend money in, you know, researching better ways to be more productive, to innovate, to be you know, to, to, to get clever about how we actually deliver uh, projects on the ground. And that's what Engine for, for Growth was, yeah. And then it's had, we, you know, we, we always had, um, we were always a bit protective about our financial numbers, I suppose. At the time, I really felt that we needed an inspirational target. So Engine for Growth calls for us to be um, a half a billion dollar company by 21 and a billion dollar company by, you know, so revenues of a billion dollars by the year 25. And so after that, and that strategy reshuffle, actually, we've done really well. We? Yeah, yeah, so after that, we were, I suppose where we were coming into this year is that we were, I think our budget for this year was about 300 million. Um, and we could see a pathway to getting to 400 million in 21, you know, with, um, you know, part of the strategy as well was that we would look at an acquisition. So that would get us to the half a billion by the end of 21. And then, you know, with a trajectory heading towards a billion dollars by 25. So um, we were probably not quite on track, but we weren't too far off it. Uh, clearly COVID is, um, uh, the COVID pandemic and the, the low oil price uh, shock to the economies has clearly put us back so much. Yeah, 2020 has been a brilliant year so far, hasn't it? I mean, yeah. um, it's been a funny one. Uh, lots of change has gone on within Kentech. Um, known more so is the fact that you have taken the reins as CEO. Yeah. Um, perhaps not the way that you you would have envisioned it happening. Um, you know, on the back of something like COVID. 
but can you just give us a little bit of an insight into what this year has felt like for you? Yeah, at the, at the outset of the year, at the outset of the year before COVID started, um, as I say, I was really confident that we were going to smash our budget this year. Um, then, then COVID struck, uh, and we, you know, we had to um, we had to really hunker down and figure out how were we going to restructure again so soon after after the restructure previously. You know, I mean, we had we had we had uh, aligned ourselves along the three service lines. And then at the same time, we had actually rolled out the fact of, of new functional reporting as well with business partners and changing again how we were how we were working. It was always it was always planned to do that. Um, but as COVID struck, we we clearly had to re-examine what we felt was possible. What was the market going to give us in terms of work uh, for 2020? How was our on-hand work going to perform? But more importantly, what did 21 look like? So that's what we did. We we, we um, instead of knee-jerking it, we went into a room for probably four or five days um, um, at the leadership team, and we looked at 21, and we kind of put the bookends of of what we felt it was going to be, you know. So we felt that 2020 would be anywhere between 170 and one and 200, and that 21 would be anywhere between 200 and, and 250. And as a result, we reshaped the overhead. So we had to, you know, and and, be, and before we started actually taking decisions, you know, within the organization, um, we decided at ELT that we would reshape the ELT. And that meant that some people would be coming off ELT and some people would be leaving the company. So Sarah uh, stepped down, you know, she had, uh, I was always uh, in my PDRs with her, had always expressed the view that I'd like to be the CEO, which is a bit of a funny thing to be saying to your boss if you want her job. Uh, But she was always very supportive of it and she was looking at ways in which she could coach me into that role. And as this came out, it was clear that, you know, we couldn't, we couldn't uh, sustain a CEO and a COO. So the roles were consolidated and I ended up in the, um, in the CEO seat, but Apart from that, we had, you know, maybe 50 other people from fixed overhead that we had to reduce, that we had to terminate, um, which is terrible. You know, I've, I've said it, I don't know how many times in the town hall. I, sometimes when you're terminating somebody who, who has really uh, not performed and misbehaved and just generally isn't, isn't uh, fitting into the culture, I can take it's almost easy to, to terminate that person. But in this instance, um, the people that we had to let go, all of those people were performing. You know, it was a, it was a high performing team. You know, we've given out some hefty pay cuts. We've got people on reduced working weeks temporarily and indefinitely. Um, you know, so it's it was it was an awful lot of pain. You know, and um, stepping into the seat as CEO at that time was just uh, so stressful and so all consuming. You know, even though we were, I was working from home, but I probably saw less of my family because I was locked upstairs uh, behind the PC on calls all day long, really, uh, trying to trying to uh, settle myself into the CEO role while letting a whole load of people go and trying to make sure that we kept maintained our cash position with our clients and, and at the same time trying to win new work. So it's been, you know, um, it's been really interesting. I've absolutely loved it, uh, but sometimes it can be a fairly heavy load to, to shoulder as well. You, you talk quite a lot about the fact that it's been a kind of lifelong ambition of yours to be the CEO of Kentech. When you first started working for us, when did you realise that you were kind of going to be here for the long haul? <laughs> Was there a moment that kind of shifted it for you? Or, you know, um, I'm like, um, 
I'm like a man's best friend, a dog, you know, I'm, every job that I've gone into, I've, I felt that I'd be there for the long haul. You know, I've only, I've worked for, I've worked for Kent's, seconded into Shell. I've worked for four companies uh, in, during my career. And each, each one of the companies at, at the time, I felt that I was going to be there for the long haul. So Kentic was no different. Um, it was just circumstance that I, that I changed. You know, I, I left Kent because um, the future was in Saudi and I was a 24-year-old young Irishman looking for, for, for more uh, adventure than Saudi was able to offer me. So I, I went to Venezuela. In Venezuela, it was a natural, it was kind of a two-year assignment and I just completed that. And then when I went back to work for a company called Proscon, a great company in, in Cork called Proscon, I was there for two years and, and the opportunity came up with, uh, with Kentech in Mexico. I was just after meeting Rasha, my wife, and she really wanted to travel. So it was her fault that I left Proscon um, and joined Kentech. So, you know, I, I immediately, you know, I was working in Mexico for Kentech and I enjoyed that. And you know, almost halfway through that project, um, at the time, um, John Murphy to me that I shouldn't look for another job that he had plans to, to bring me into the permanent staff of, of Kentech. Yeah. And, as, and I think in um, about 2007 or so, I was on a, an incentive to grow the company at the time um, and I managed to get equity in the company. So once, I suppose once you get equity in the company, I suppose that's a, a period where you kind of think you're in for the long haul then, you know. But I don't think it really changed my attitude. I, I, would, I would have, as I said, on all four companies that I've worked with, I felt that I was going to be there for the long haul. Yeah. So, you know, hopefully we'll get 2020 out of the way pretty soon and we can get back to our engine for growth trajectory. But what, do you, what, what are your main aspirations for the future of Kentech now that you sit in the CEO seat? Yeah, I mean, it, it was it was clear from, you know, if you remember, if you go back to the first town hall that we were all fretting about and uh, was making commitments to people that we will survive, you know, the, the initial brief was survival. I mean, it, was a, it, it was a completely fluid situation and people didn't know what was going to happen, you know, and as this is continuing further, um, you know, we've moved from survival now to actually, you know, to thriving, if you like. I've, I feel that we've gotten our hands completely around um, the crisis we're still going to be profit making even in 2020. So it shows the resilience of the company. We're going to go into 21, you know, with record backlog. Um, so I'm, I'm hoping that um, by the time we get around to um, breaking up for year end, I'm hoping that our backlog is going to be north of 200 million, you know, with, which would be, you know, a record backlog for Kentech at, at that time of year, you know? So, we're we've we've made some new strategic hires where we're start you know we're we're opening up our engineering and uh, projects service line you know morphing chew into that we've hired donald um who's who's really come up the curve uh, very very fast and i can see that pipeline developing already so you know to say that we will probably have i think the initial look on i think ben is going to pre uh, present it um tomorrow on the town hall the initial look at the revenue that's come in even on the half year Four twenty one is that will be at revenues about two hundred and ninety million. So, for at that at that point, it'd be nice to get north of three hundred million, and then we're back we're back on track, um, on our engine for growth. Albeit we're probably twelve months behind, but it's it's somewhat understandable. We'll still look at acquisition. You know, we still okay. I I think it's unrealistic to say that we're going to be a half a billion 
dollars next year because clearly you know getting north of 300 million would be fantastic and if an acquisition comes along the way um, you know depending on its side size that might get us up to 400 you one doesn't know my firm belief though is that we will still uh, reach revenues of a billion dollars by 25 or before um, and that has to be it so we'll still set we'll still have our three service lines i see us as strengthening our engineering side of it with the hiring of Donald, and that will probably include an acquisition to bolt on additional engineering capability. Um, I see it as TMM for long-term uh, secure contracts, and I see STS as continuing to outperform all of its all of its budgets. But then, within all three service lines, I would like us to diversify, and um, so that we're not completely uh, wedded to the oil and gas business. You know. And diversification could be into adjacent industries, you know, like wastewater, power generation, um, even renewables would be, it would be fantastic to actually, you know, get some part of, of our services into the renewable side of things. And it might be on the maintenance side, most likely it would be on the actual project side, the engineering um, and project side of things, you know. Just stepping away from the discussions around um, strategy and numbers a little bit more. Um, you and I have talked a lot about, you know, the evolution of businesses and the structure of businesses and what they look like. And you've been quite open talking about you're a big fan of um, Frederick Lelou's book, Reinventing Organizations, and, and also um, Team of Teams, the book with um, Chris Fussell. What is it about those books and those ideas that appeals to you so much? Like, how do you think this might play into the future of Chemtech? Yeah, it's funny, you know. Um, it's a twenty. I suppose it's a twenty. You know, I suppose even when I joined Kent's first, when when whatever that was in ninety six, I suppose the ambition would have been to, to be the CEO of Kent's. Um, when I joined uh, Kentech, certainly after the first year, the ambition would have been the CEO. Of uh, of Kentech, you know, and then I I finally got into the seat, and I've been influenced by books, which really says that I shouldn't be sitting at the top of a pyramid whatsoever. Um, you know, even on our our office space in Dubai, I'm giving up my office space to kind of office share, and I just feel it just feels right, you know. I just, you know, we part part of the engine for growth strategy is talking about an engine and fueling the engine and making it work mechanically and all the rest of it. But the reading that I've been doing and the work that I've been doing with, uh, with David Rook and with, um, with Mel from shift to unlimited. And I think it was Kylie actually introduced me to, to Frederick Lelou's book. Um, it just feels like it's very K2 to have a company that's more um, likened to a living organism rather than something that's mechanical that you you stuff in people in one end and then you churn out dollars in the other end you know so it just feels it feels better so that you know with the whole if you if you're kind of talking about people don't want to be managed people want to have a say and they actually want to be able to influence their own destiny you know because you know we talk you know one one thing that i keep pushing for as well is is forming meaningful relationships at work you know so and um, the reason for that is that there's there's you know very clear data in there is that we're we're actually at the point of another evolutionary step in how organizations are formed because engagement numbers are it's I, I think it's something like a, a Gallup study in in um, 16 2016 or something said that really only about 30% of the workforce are actually engaged 
you know, so you can imagine what you can, you know, I, I keep, I keep saying this, you know, that if you can tap into getting everybody on the bus, getting the right people on the bus and getting them all engaged, the possibilities are, are, um, are endless. And I suppose it's just that the model before where all of the, you know, and this sounds terrible, where all of the thinking was done at the top and the leadership team, and then it was kind of handed down and everybody really needed to just do what they were told. Um, that's what ends up, you know, what, what, where you end up is 30% of the people being engaged because they're rule followers. In many respects, you don't even want those people in there. They don't come as like sheep. You want people um, that will question things and say, we, we can do this better. And actually um, organizing themselves in teams, cross-functional teams, cross-geography teams, that they can actually come up with proposals that are adopted without the need for actually approval, you know. Um, having said that, I read I read books like this all the time. That's probably been the most impressive book that I've read in ten years. And every time I read a new book, I say, "Oh, that's that's the answer. Let's let's go for this." And and this one does. To be fair, this one does seem a bit different. But I might have said that about um, a lot of books in the past. But this one does seem a bit different. But I think what what, what we have to do is we have to cater this, you know. So we have to take in the knowledge that everybody's been learning from all their different books and all the different experiences and different companies. Um, and figure out what feels right for us. So it is almost like a living organism. The company, the organization as a living organism decide, well, we do like this piece and we'll cherry pick the bits that work for us and we'll make it K2 and we'll reset it. And what we'll come up with, um, hopefully, will be um, better, stronger, faster than everybody else. Final question um, that I'm hoping we can ask on every episode of this um, new podcast. If one piece of advice to the next generation of entering the industry, what would it be? One piece of advice. Um, I guess you know, if I if, you know, if I was to if I was to say something to to myself after I came out of college, yeah, it would it would it would be just learn and be open to change. You know, good. I suppose good. Good work ethic is always right, and it's it's engaged. You know, because we we have it. You and I always talk about how can we get people more engaged. You know, and really, what you know, what people who are running companies are looking for is somebody to put their hand up and be vulnerable and say, "I I fancy I fancy a go at that." You know, it's, it's you know, and I've 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 read about it. I've looked at it. I've learned, and you ask you're asking quite you're inquisitive and you're inquiring all the time how can i do this and how can i do that and how can i do this better and could we do this better if we did it this way those types of people just float uh, to the attention of of people who are trying to you know trying to manage or trying to lead because you just uh, in, when you're in positions that that we're in no you're you're aching for people to do that um people something and it's surprising um i guess how few people do it until such times they get confidence you know I suppose what is what, and, and I know I'm twisting the question. What's you know, as as I'm talking, what's really important? I'm getting clarity on what's really important for us is that we have to create an environment where all of those graduates coming in feel that they can actually put their hand up and um, and ask questions and and get more responsibility. Yeah, it's nurturing those voices, isn't it? I mean, there's something yeah. I always say to young people is. Don't be afraid of sounding silly. Absolutely, yeah. That's something that always held me back in the past. Like I didn't think that my voice was 
um, important enough, or I would say something that would just sound really silly to these people. Don't be afraid of sounding silly, because you might just say something really awesome. There you go, yeah. I've never known you to hold back, though. <laughs> you wouldn't believe I was really, really shy as a child, would you? <laughs> no. Well, that's, um, that's it. Thanks for the conversation. Thank you. Frederick Laloux's book, Reinventing Organisations, that we mentioned there, explains how every time humanity has shifted to a new stage of consciousness, it's also invented a radically more productive organisational model. Can we see a future where hierarchies are no more? No job titles, no managers, just self-managing teams capable of handling any and all complexity. It might seem like a long way away, but the heart of this approach is about humanising organisations, which is something that speaks right to the core of what Kentech is about. And with a new leader to guide us along the path, who is perhaps slightly touched, I guess anything is possible. If you enjoyed this podcast and you'd like to hear more, please subscribe. Until then, take care and stay safe.